This episode of the Curious Life podcast is brought to you by the sneaky treat company Melbourne, decadent sweet treats delivered to your door. Let your friends, family or clients know that you're thinking of them with a box of goodies and a personalised note to send along with your gift. TheSneakyTreatCo.com. You know you want to. Jordana Levine is the best-selling author of Make It Happen and Higher Love and the host of three successful podcasts. With a background in journalism, she's built a reputation for taking big topics, making them relatable, digestible and downright entertaining. Through her wit, warmth and street-smart practicality, she invites readers to get curious about the things that light them up. Jordana believes that aha moments are contagious and self-awareness is our greatest superpower. She currently spends her time writing from the sunny coastal town of Byron Bay, where she has penned her latest novel, Make You Happen. She sits down with Yana Firestone and they have a wonderful chat about grief, learning ways to cope with it and all things that are about you. Stick around, you won't want to miss this one. Hello and welcome to season four of the Curious Life podcast. I am sitting here today with Jordana Levine. Really excited to talk with you today about your new book, Make You Happen. Wow, you have a copy. I do. I have a real life copy. I just am so excited. I love having the real thing in your hand. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think you're one of the first to have a copy. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe because we share a publisher, so I might okay, have that's probably why <laughs> might have been bumped up the ranks. <laughs> but I'm really grateful to have had a copy of this beautiful book because I'm really so into manifestation. I think it's such a fascinating area of interest, and it's sort of always been something that people are aware of. And even going back to the days of the secret, that was really the first public pop culture understanding of manifestation. And it's really become much more of a less woo-woo and more of a established way of thinking and being. So this is actually your second book on manifesting. I mean, strictly speaking, it's my third book on manifesting. That's true, actually. Yeah. Higher I, Love was the was the yeah, other one, right? And it was yeah. more about manifesting love. But yeah, same, same sort of premise. Let's talk a little bit about manifestation then. And oh. I know there's obviously so much that we could go into, but is there an easy way for you to talk about your yeah. experience of manifestation, what it means to you and how people can start to understand it a little bit? My sort of experience with manifestation was through actually experiencing it was very experiential Mm -hmm. and the way that I realized what was going on and that we actually are all manifesting every second of the day without even realizing it was it would have been in my early 20s and things were just going pretty shit in my life to be honest I was in a toxic relationship I had a really toxic work environment I was injuring myself a lot and I just kind of felt my life spiraling before my very eyes and I was like what is going on why is all of this happening to me at once and I sort of stood back and I looked at what was at play and I kind of started to figure out that it had a lot to do with my mindset so where my thoughts were at how I was feeling within myself but also how I was sort of expressing emotions and what emotions I allowed myself to sort of wallow in 
the actions or lack of actions that I was taking in my life and the responsibility I was taking for those actions. And then also I had realized after growing up quite spiritual that I'd really lost my sense of faith and faith in myself, but also faith in something greater than me, like connecting me to something. And it was through all of that, that I kind of developed what I now call the manifestation equation. And that's what my first book, Make It Happen is all about. It's that manifestation equation, which goes thoughts plus feelings, plus actions, plus faith equals manifestation. And it's only when all four parts of that equation are working together that manifestation actually becomes quite easeful. Yeah, that's how it all sort of came together for me. And for people that are listening and might be a little bit sceptical and might say, oh, okay, you've got to have faith. You're not talking (laughs) about religion, are you? No, no, but faith in terms of religion is great too. But I'm talking about a deep trust in yourself and most importantly, your self-worth manifestation and your level of self-worth and deservedness are directly correlated. So in the areas of your life where self-worth comes easily to you, there'll be certain areas where you have a little bit more self-worth than you do in other areas. In those areas, you'll probably find manifestation is a really easeful practice. And in the areas of your life where your self-worth struggles, your manifestation practice will suffer as well. It is really about having a deep sense of faith within yourself and trust within yourself, but it's also a lot of responsibility to put everything that happens in your life back on you. It's sort of realizing that there is energy and power greater than us. And some people who are religious might call it God. Some people who are a little bit more spiritual might call it universe. Some people who don't really know where they sit might not have a word for it. It's just an energy. But it is sort of realizing that there is much more out in the world than just what we can conceive in our tiny little human brains. And I think the whole thing is really interesting. I love the equation that you talk about because I think for a lot of people, manifestation is quite simplified. People just think, oh, well, you just kind of wish for what you want and then it's going to happen. Or positive thoughts. You know, you just need to have positive thoughts all the time and, you know, a Ferrari will drive into your driveway. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But I really love that you address all the different areas where you need to put all the pieces together and you can't sort of be lazy about it. You have to look at the whole picture. That's important because as you were saying, manifestation can work in a positive way or a negative way. And if you're constantly having those negative thoughts and believing that you don't deserve whatever it is that you're hoping for in life, a relationship, good things coming your way, all of those things, then it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? And then can spiral into just negative, negative, negative. So it's important to look at all those different aspects of your life and try to work on your self-worth and your self-awareness and fulfill yourself in all of those areas and put those pieces together. Absolutely. And that's where this latest book sort of stemmed from. And it's called Make You Happen. And it works on the premise that we actually can't manifest what we want until we first acknowledge that we manifest who we are. And that's why a self-awareness practice is so important. It's sort of knowing yourself intimately inside and out. And from that space, sort of taking in all of your strengths and also recognizing your weaknesses, not using them as an excuse, but 
realizing what they are and then making room for them and making adjustments around them, then self-awareness not only becomes your greatest superpower, but it also aligns you with what is meant for you, which is essentially what manifestation is. If people are thinking about, okay, well, this all sounds really interesting. Is there a simple way to get people kind of opening up to this kind of practice? The thing I love about particularly this one, Make You Happen, is that there's little activities to be doing throughout each chapter. So ways that you can look at each area that you're addressing and turn the spotlight inwards and look at how you might be able to change things for yourself. So I certainly don't expect you to summarize the whole book, but is there a simple way for people to maybe just start thinking about these things and opening up to this practice? Yeah, I think the biggest part of self-awareness, there's actually three steps to self-awareness, but the first and most integral step is curiosity. Mm -hmm. It's getting curious about yourself, but also the way that you show up in the world, how the world interacts with you, how you interact with people. So it's your communication, it's your emotions, it's your energy expenditure, it's how much of energy you absorb and do you have adequate ways to recharge. Looking at your spiritual practices, your intuition, what you desire, like having clarity around what it is you want to manifest in this life. And many of us aren't clear on that. Mm. And I think clarity is the only way to be able to direct your energy where it needs to go. And for many of us, we don't even know where that is. So it's really hard to even contemplate the idea of manifestation. And the reason that I put those exercises throughout the book, and I've actually done it with all three of my books, is because I myself hate personal development and self-help books. Can't stand them. The reason is because what tends to happen is I read it all and I'm like, yeah, and I'm really excited. And then a few days later, I haven't implemented anything. And slowly, all of that information starts to leave my head because I haven't taken any action, which I think is many of us when we read personal development and self-help. What happens when you go through my books, and in this case with Make You Happen, is you're actually doing the self-awareness work along the way. So by the time you get to the end of the book, you're actually a self-aware person. And it's just a matter of implementing that as you move through. So the following two steps to self-awareness, we've got curiosity, acceptance. So after you learn a lot about yourself, it's sort of accepting that that's who you are. And then the integral last step is the integration piece. It's sort of embodying all of that. And I think that's where we sort of fall behind when it comes to personal development and self-help work. It's the, it's the integration of it, which is the most important bit. And I love that. It's like you're consolidating the information and that reflection as you go. Maybe you don't even realize that you're doing it. You know, you might, yes, be sitting down with your journal and doing a few little activities, but it's prompting you to think about things as you go rather than waiting to the end and then trying to figure it all out. Yeah. It can be frustrating when someone's reading to have to stop and do the exercises. But I think if you do do them along the way, what happens is your knowledge builds as you go throughout the book, which is the way that it works. And if you've missed those exercises, you're sort of missing out on, 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 you know, the good stuff, really the work. What's really interesting as well is what you touched on just before in terms of energy, because 
for all of us that are busy people, the lack of energy or the amount of energy that we have to put into things and that we're losing in other areas, we don't even realize how much that impacts us on every level from our mental health to even, as you say, being aware of what is meant for us in this life. If we're completely depleted of energy and we're giving so much of ourselves to areas of our lives that may or may not serve us, whether that's relationships that maybe aren't right for us or maybe they're draining, maybe we're in in the wrong work scenario, maybe we're giving too much or not enough time to the things that are going to make a difference to us. I I guess this is the busy person conundrum these days. We're all kind of suffering to some degree with that. But I think that's really important to kind of become aware of when we're looking at ourselves and what we would like to change in our lives. For a lot of people, recognizing some of that energy expenditure can be really confronting because it might mean that you've got to let go of things that aren't really serving you the way that maybe they should. And that can be a bit hard for people. Yeah. I think with energy a lot as well, I know this was the case for me. I was always comparing my energy output to other people and being Mm -hmm. like, how can they achieve so much? How do they not burn out? And as someone who burnt out a lot when I was working in my corporate years, I didn't understand why I didn't have the stamina for energy expenditure that other people have. Once you can become aware that it really is a personal practice and everybody absorbs and has different capacities and recharges differently and working out what works for you, then energy can be seen in a completely different light. Ever felt you needed a really good reason to ghost your friends or just stay at home or cancel something that you really didn't want to go to? Well, keep listening because Jordana and Yana will tell you why that is all okay. I love how you've got that little table in the book comparing introverts and extroverts because I actually feel like I'm an outgoing introvert. So on the surface, I look like I'm really outgoing and I've got a lot of great energy, but actually how I recharge is by myself and I do kind of get more out of being on my own than I do with other people, which sounds terrible as a therapist and as someone who loves people. It's a funny sort of other side of the coin for me. And I think it's really important to acknowledge those things about ourselves because even in my 20s, I think I was out all the time. I was with my friends all the time. I was giving so much of myself in a social way. There was a part of me that loved it, but I was absolutely drained and exhausted all the time. And it's only now I've just turned 40 and I'm really clear about where I want to spend my energy. And it means that I'm seeing my friends less and I'm going out a whole lot less. And on the surface, that's not a great thing, but it's what I need at the moment. And I'm aware of that now. But it's also like, who says it's not a great thing? Like who says that taking time to recharge and having time on your own and not seeing your friends is not a great thing if it allows you to show up as a mother, as a therapist, as a friend, as a daughter, as a, you know, all the things that you have to show up as day to day. I remember I was the same in my 20s. I had massive FOMO about everything. So I had to be at every social engagement. 
I also worked really hard. I was at uni. I had a job that started at 5am in the morning. I was just go, 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 go. And I did used to have certain days where I did not get out of bed and I would just sit and watch something on my laptop. And I had so much guilt about it because I didn't understand it back then. And I was like, what's wrong with me? And I'd have my phone on silent and the room was dark. But I realized now in retrospect that that was the only way I was able to get up and out of the house the next day. Yeah, so true. So how how long did it take you to come to that realization? (laughs) I don't know what year it was, but it was the year, you know, that book, Quiet, Susan Cain, is it? Oh, yes. It's when we sort of all really learned about introverts. She did this TED talk, it went viral. It was the first time I realized that being an introvert was more about recharging energy Mm. than it was about being a shy person. Because although there are elements of me that can be shy, I also love public speaking. I love performing on stage. I was such a performer as a child. I am very social. So I didn't quite fit into what I thought introvert meant. But once I learned that it was really about energy expenditure and how you recharge, totally changed the game for me. And I think from that point, I started to drop the guilt around those moments where I needed to be alone. I also, in my 30s, happened to make friends with a lot of other introverts. So we (laughs) really respect each other's recharge time. That's brilliant. I love that. I think, yeah, for, for me, I've got a lot of extroverted friends. And so I think I still feel the guilt that yeah. I'm, I should be doing this and I should be doing that. Especially after the last two years, particularly being in Melbourne, it's an introvert's dream. I, you know, had a hundred percent recharge. Well, when my kids weren't here, but we weren't allowed to do anything. We weren't allowed to go anywhere. And there's been a part of me that's felt a little bit like I'm a bit worried that I've become very comfortable in that place. And should I be doing more? Should I be putting myself back out there again? It's kind of that fine balance of knowing what's right for you and what's good for you. And then also wanting to be part of the world and be part of the things that are going on that are important in your life. And this is what self-awareness brings as well is I think we get to a point where we know a moment that we're using to recharge and we can also tell when we're hiding away from the world. You know, it's a very personal feeling, but I think we have an awareness of it and it's being kind and gentle with yourself, but recognizing that if you don't put back in what you've put out, then there'll likely be, you know, days or weeks or months of burnout where you don't actually get to go out at all. How did you manage the burnout in those early years of your career? Yeah, it was, it was really, really hard. I didn't know what it was. I didn't even know that we called it burnout. I think um, the first time I realized what was going on was I just started a new job and it was a very highly coveted role. I was meant to feel amazing having nabbed it. I didn't. It felt really shit pretty much from the second week I was there. I could just tell the environment was quite toxic. And I got very, very sick. And I had this, this was back when no one was scared of you having a cold in the office. (laughs) I think I had a cold for, oh my God, I would say four months. Like I just was never not sick. And I always had tissues and I just couldn't get my immune system back. I started seeing a naturopath eventually. And she was like, look, I think I think you're having a burnout. I think your adrenals are absolutely maxed Mm -hmm. and your immunity, you know, just can't get on top of itself. And so I took a few weeks off work and managed to get myself back 
to a good state having not worked in a while. And then I kind of saw the correlation between the two and I was like, "Uh uh-oh. And I ended up leaving that job. I never went back to corporate after that. So for people who might be thinking about making a shift like that, that can be really scary to have to put yourself first like that in front of the career progression you might have imagined for yourself and money, paying bills. How did you take that leap? What did you, what did you do? Well, look, I was very... I was very lucky and privileged in the sense that the decision I made to leave that job coincided with a brand uh, who sort of worked in a similar industry to me asking me to come and work freelance for them. So I thought, okay, this is my opportunity. And that was my sign to leave. And that was actually when I started to turn stuff around. You know, I said I was in that toxic job, toxic relationship, all those sorts of things. That was my first move was getting out of the job. And I was like, all right, I do have the ability to turn this around. That's when I started to change my mindset. And then that job offer came in. So yeah, I was lucky in that I left and my foray into freelance. So I was a journalist before my foray into freelance was quite seamless. I understand that's not the case for everybody and that not everyone can just walk out of their job, especially if they've got a family to support. But I think it's about recognizing when your energy is being used in ways that is detrimental to you and that we all sort of have a choice there. And I think when you reach peak burnout um, at work and, you know, it happens to men too. I always talk about it in, in the context of women, but I know a lot of men that have burnt out at work and it's a totally different story for them because they feel like they can't walk out of something saying, oh, I'm tired, you know, I'm yeah. really depressed or whatever it might be. But it happens to them as well. And I think it's realizing what, what is priority for you? Like what is priority? And what I realized, the turning point for me is that my work, which is so important to me, I'm the kind of girl who will only do something that she's the best at, was very much suffering. And I thought, hang on, I can't even perform well when I'm like this. So what exactly is the point of being here? It comes back to that self-awareness, doesn't it? Knowing that you needed to make these massive shifts to A, just survive because you were in such a a threatening place in terms of your health. And then seeing opportunities as well can be really hard when you're in a low place. And I think sometimes people might miss those opportunities. So it's a really good reminder just to kind of keep your eyes open for anything that might be a little sign to take that leap and to put yourself first. And it's silly to say out loud, but so often we ignore the physical signs because we feel like we have to, or we should, those inverted commas should be doing things the way that we're sort of expected to. We're living in a time now where people have so many more opportunities to work differently and to put themselves first. I think we're in a time in the world for the first time ever where we're just talking about things and mental health is a priority and talking about things like energy and what is there for you and manifesting things has become so normalized that we can take leaps that maybe we wouldn't have been able to do even 10 years ago. Great. One of the other things that you talk about in the book, which I think is really brave and really important is your experience of grief. And mm-hmm. for people listening, I often share my stories of grief. I lost my mum when I was 21 and that really shaped me and the decisions I made and helped me really to get to where I am today. But I just think it's so important to share those experiences so that we can also normalize the experience of grief and bring hope 
and remember that there are ways out. Everybody processes it differently, but it's a totally universal experience. Absolutely. What I didn't understand about grief is it's really hard to empathize fully with it until you've been through it. I was lucky enough in my life not to have experienced grief until 36, I think. I had friends around me who had lost parents or had lost babies or had had big moments in their life where they were deep in grief. And I thought I understood and I thought I was sympathizing and I thought I was being there for them in the right capacity. And then when I went through it, I realized that there is a whole other level to grief that you can't really put into words or explain. And maybe that's why people don't understand it fully because it can be really hard to share it because it's hard to articulate what you actually go through. And, and I don't know about you, but what I found myself doing in the early stages of grief was Googling how to deal with it. You know, like, I don't understand what the process is. How long is this going to take? Like, how long am I expected to feel like this? And unfortunately, there, there is no guidebook. But I think the more that I opened up to people about my grief and they opened up to me about their grief, I sort of understood that, like you said, there is sort of this universal feeling, especially in those stages where you've sort of moved through those initial early stages, which are so tricky. And you, you're getting to those stages that I don't think grief ever ends, but sort of where you've moved along a little bit, there are ways to navigate it. It's so interesting. And I think one of the things that I talked about in my book was the closure myth. And I think generally people are sold this myth that one day there's going to be closure and we're going to move through our grief and we'll get to that magic end point where the loop will close and then we'll be ourselves again. But, you know, like you said, grief, grief never ends. It just evolves and we learn to live with it. I actually had not so long ago, the sort of one year anniversary of the grief that I went through. And it was quite a, a shocking moment for me because I, I had this idea in my head when I went through the initial grief. So I, I had a miscarriage about a year ago. And when it first happened, I kept saying to myself, and maybe even someone said it to me at the time, just think about a year from now, how much better you will feel. And the anniversary came around and I didn't feel that much better, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. still really raw. Yeah. And I thought, oh God, the fact that I'd had that in my head that once I hit the 12, 12 month mark, it was going to disappear and it didn't was quite, uh, yeah, I think shocking is probably the best word. And I think now when I talk about grief with other people, I try not to put timeframes on things because when we're not matching the timeframe that someone else has set us, it can make us feel like we haven't done grief right. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I think that's part of that closure myth. And it's so funny that you were Googling, like, how long <laughs> am I going to be feeling like this? Because I think that's part of that need to control this completely out of control feeling. You feel completely beholden to this horror. You just don't want to be living it. You don't want to be feeling it. And you sort of feel like there's nothing you can do. Mm. And to have that little glimmer of hope that you'll hit the 12 month mark or you'll get to a certain place and suddenly it'll be gone. I can understand. I mean, that's very attractive to think that there's a certain day in the calendar that this will all be over because of course you want it to be over. What did you do then to move through that distress at the 12 month mark? I had upped my therapy sessions. Great. <laughs> Always good. 
It was really helpful to talk about it. It was very helpful. I felt very alone in my grief, like I shouldn't be feeling it 12 months later. And I think the hardest bit about grief is in the early stages, there's a lot of people there for you and then their lives move on and yours doesn't. You feel like it's time to stop talking about it. What was helpful for me with therapy at that 12 month mark was this idea that it was very normal to still be feeling the way that you're feeling and that you don't need to be any further along than you are because, again, there's no rule book. So I found that really helpful. I did open up to a few friends about it and I feel like that was a relief for them as well to sort of hear me voice that maybe I was still struggling a little bit. I think we can become so consumed with unburdening other people around us and I think, look, that's why therapy is so helpful because you have sort of someone who's, I mean, you'd know this, who's, who's there to listen and that's their job. But I think a lot of the time, you know, friends don't know what you need and they think that doing nothing is better than doing the wrong thing. So sometimes it's just telling them what you need. That's such an important point because even through the worst of it, on the surface, we can still just look like everything's fine and we're okay. And our friends probably feel a little bit of relief to see that you're up and about, you're going to yoga or you've met them for a coffee or on the surface, you're sort of back to your normal self again. And then underneath, you're completely holding it together and you're going to go home and maybe you completely collapse and fall apart. But it's this kind of constant evolving thing where you can be okay at one day or one hour or whatever it is and also at the same time not be okay. And of course, we want to show people the best version of ourselves, as you say, so that they're not feeling the burden of it and the weight of it. I remember having a similar experience of talking about it all the time in the beginning and then having this period where you're just kind of pretending like you're okay. And then having a conversation again, I mean, you just triggered a memory now when you talked about opening up to a few friends, but I felt like way down the track, I was having an honest conversation with some friends about it again, but not needing anything from them, not wanting them to solve it, just feeling like, well, actually, yeah, this is where I'm at. And I think for a lot of people, they feel scared that they've got to solve it. Like if someone tells me they're not okay, I've got to have the answers yeah. about how to make them okay. But it's not the case, is it? No, it's not. The way that I kind of dealt with my grief was <laughs> what I tend to do is put as much as I can in writing, but it was less about helping people that are experiencing the grief and more about guiding the people who are helping the people that are experiencing grief. Because I think, like I said, you know, I'd never experienced it before and I had lots of friends that had, and I wasn't really sure how to show up. I think you hit the nail on the head there. It's less about needing someone to fix it, needing someone to yeah, solve the problem and make you feel better and just needing someone to listen. And just feeling that connection with someone. Hey, I'm going through something really terrible. I'm not as okay as I might appear. And then having someone just hold that space for you. It's just... Yeah. The other thing I found really helpful when I was going through my grief, and it's the reason I wrote this book actually, was in the beginning, I kept trying to get back to the person I was before the miscarriage, before I felt like my world had fallen apart, like before you lost your mother, trying to be that person. And I realized that I had been changed at that point. Mm. And so I had to introduce the three steps of self-awareness again to say, okay, well, who are you now and who are you going forward? And it doesn't have to be a better person. It doesn't have to be a worse person. It doesn't have to be the same person, but you do need to recognize who you've become and who you are going forward. 
that was really helpful because I knew I was never going to be the person I was before. Yeah, that's so important and something I think doesn't get talked about because I think going through something as transformative as grief, like it really changes you on a cellular level. It changes everything. It's almost like going behind the curtain. And suddenly you're seeing yourself and the world and your place in the world in a completely different way. And like you say, we think we know what grief is like before we've gone through it. And on some level, of course, you can understand that it would be transformative to lose somebody. But once you go through it, it's just, yeah, it changes you on every single level in a way that you can't really explain, as you said, unless you go through it. And unfortunately, we will all go through it. I mean, that's why... Yeah, these conversations are really important. And, you know, to be able to have that moment to reflect and think, you know what, I'm never going to be the same. It doesn't mean I'm worse. It doesn't mean my life's going to be bad from here on out. It just means I am a different person. I've I've now experienced something that has changed me significantly. So who am I now? Like yeah. brilliant. So important. Jordana Levine is the best-selling author of Make It Happen and Higher Love and now has just released Make You Happen. So what's next? Yana and Jordana talk about it right after this. So you said that was the reason that you started putting pen to paper for this book. Yeah. There's so much more to this book. I don't want people to think this is just a, a grief book because it's not at all. No, in fact, like four yeah, pages or exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, did the rest of the book just fall into place once you started at that point? It was funny. I, this book originally started as a book of essays. So, mm-hmm. I was just, <laughs> I don't know, I think I was trying to be Lena Dunham. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. And I was yeah. like, I'm going to write essays about my life. Yeah. And everything that I was writing was really about different aspects of self and seeing myself in different lights and Mm -hmm. and rediscovering myself after being through not just this particular grief, but experiences, whether it was heartbreak or jobs or whatever it might be, or, you know, body image stuff. And I started to see the sort of common thread being self-awareness. And then I realized, you know, I sort of went back to my first book, Make It Happen, which was about manifestation. And I thought, wow, you really actually can't manifest until you're self-aware. And and we sort of saw the correlation there and thought, yeah, this, this is what this book is. But it was only because I had had to rebuild who I was again Mm. that I was so sort of in the thick of the practice. And I realized that not only was I in a position to be able to guide people through figuring out exactly who you are from the dismantling of my own self, but there was so much power that came from that practice that people could use in all aspects of their life. This is so important for anyone that might be going through grief at the moment or have someone around them going through it, that there really is light at the end of the tunnel. And I I, no, I hate to kind of put it like this because, you know, when I say it like this, it really diminishes the experience of grief. But I do feel like everything does sort of happen for a reason. And people have said to me, oh, my God, really, though, like losing your mum, you think that happened for a reason? Like, of course, I would give everything in this world to have her back. But after going through that, my life, as you said, changed completely. My direction in life changed. The way I look at the world changed. And where I am today 
is explicitly because of how I changed back then. So I think that's so important. Like this book wouldn't exist potentially if you hadn't gone through something terrible and started working your way through that. Yeah. What's most important is if you are in the grief at the moment is realizing that you don't need to find what that reason is now. Because <laughs> yes. I know when it first happened, I think it was day two yeah. and I yeah. was saying to a girlfriend, but why did this happen? I don't understand. What was the reason? Have I done yeah. something wrong? You know, yeah. What, yeah. why am I going through this? This isn't fair. Yeah. Said to me, oi, like, hold on a second. Like, we don't need to figure out a reason now. But 12 months later, yeah, yeah, I can see the reason. Yeah. And that's right. And it doesn't take away the pain. It doesn't mean you don't wish things were different. I mean, I still have moments where I feel like my loss is completely unfair and why did it happen? It's not fair. But when you kind of take a macro perspective and look at things a little bit more rationally and maybe a bit less emotionally, you can see how the path unravels from there and or reveals itself. And and I love that point you made that we don't have to know straight away and we're not going to know. It's something that only comes with time and reflection and hindsight. But I guess the message is that there is hope and things do change and good can come out of really difficult, awful things. Absolutely. What is next for you? This beautiful book is in the world. By the way, can we talk about these incredible covers? You I have know. had like three out of three stunning cover design. I know. Amazing. I'm so lucky. So this cover, the Make You Happen cover, was designed by Alyssa Danalo, and she also did Higher Love, which was my second book. Covers are so important to me mm. because I'm a huge reader and I absolutely judge a book by its cover. Yeah, and yeah. so getting the covers right was was super important. Yeah. yeah. And they're, well, they're great. Yeah. I love them. A hundred percent. She's yeah. nailed it. It's so beautiful. So yeah, what is coming next for you? I'm actually writing my first fiction book at the moment, which wow. is really hard. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> I mean, it is exciting, but it's really hard. It's much yeah. harder than writing uh, nonfiction, but I kind of reached a point I probably should never say never but I finished this third one and I was like I cannot talk about myself anymore (laughs) I'd given enough personal anecdote through personal development books and I was like no it's time to shift gears so yeah I'm writing my first fiction at the moment who knows when I will be finished with that that's a huge project and huge undertaking but how exciting to be trying your skills in a different way yeah Absolutely. And where can people find you? Where can they hear what you're up to? Yeah, best place to uh, see what I'm up to is on Instagram. So my handle is at Jordana Levine. My website, jordanalevine.com. I've got a couple of podcast shows. One is called Luna Lover. It's all about the moon, Mm -hmm. but from like a really practical, relatable, easy to apply standpoint. And then my other podcast is called Talk Wordy to Me, which is all about books and writing and all of that sort of stuff. Amazing. You're covering it all. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jordana, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for being so open and for sharing so much of your story and for putting so much of it into this beautiful book with great humor and self-deprecation. And the anecdotes are light, even though we've talked about some heavy stuff. There's a lot of really fun, light stuff in there. Lots of friends references and it's a really fun, light read. It's not heavy. I don't want people to freak out. I just think it's going to fly off the shelves and it was a joy to read. And thank you so much for spending this time talking with me about it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. That was really fun. Thanks for listening. We would love it if you left us a rating for this episode. 
and catch up with Yana for more inspiration and info on how to get to the stories that tap into your passion on Instagram and Facebook at The Curious Life Podcast. And if you're looking for a fabulous podcast editor or producer, use ours. Julie Reynolds will turn your audio lemons into audio lemonade. Check out audiolemonade.com.au.